You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, photographer, teacher, mom, award-winning volunteer, and secretary of the Chapter Leadership Committee of the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Tomorrow happens to be an important date in American lighthouse history. It's the birthday of a woman who is probably the most famous lighthouse keeper in our history, Ida Lewis of Lime Rock in Newport Harbor, Rhode Island. She was born in Newport on February 25, 1842. And to celebrate Ida Lewis's birthday, our guest today is Lenore Skomal, author of one of the best books ever written about Ida Lewis, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. Michelle, let's start by giving our listeners some background on Lime Rock and Ida Lewis. Sure, Jeremy. The city of Newport, Rhode Island is on Aquidneck Island, about 74 miles south of Boston. By the middle of the 19th century, passenger ferries, commercial traffic, and military personnel heading to and from Newport's Fort Adams combined to necessitate a navigational light in Newport's inner harbor. Congress appropriated the modest amount of $1,000 for a light in 1853. During the following year, a small stone tower was erected on the largest of the Lime Rocks, a cluster of limestone ledges about 900 feet from shore on the southern side of the inner harbor. At first, the keeper had to row from shore to tend the light. A one-room shanty was provided near the tower in case bad weather forced the keeper to spend the night. Hosea Lewis was appointed keeper on November 15, 1853. He had served as a pilot in the Revenue Cutter Service for about 12 years when he took the lightkeeping job. Lewis lived with his family in a small house in Newport. His first wife had died and Lewis married Idawali Zoradiah Willie in 1838. Their second child, born February 25, 1842, was named Idawali Zoradiah Lewis after her mother, but she would be known to the world as Ida Lewis. In 1857, a two-story keeper's house was built at the station. A narrow, square column of brick built onto the building's northwest corner was surmounted by a small lantern which held a sixth-order Fresnel lens showing a fixed white light. Access to the lens was through a second-story alcove in the house. The Lewis family moved to their new offshore home in late June. About four months later, Hosea Lewis suffered a paralyzing stroke that left him unable to fulfill his duties as keeper. Hosea Lewis's wife took over much of the lighthouse work and was eventually given the official title of keeper in 1872. But right from the time of her father's stroke, young Ida played a substantial role in the management of the light and household. Ida not only tended the light, but also rode her younger brothers and sisters to the mainland every day for school and picked up supplies as they were needed. Ida's rowing skills, strength and courage were to come into play many times during her life at Lime Rock. Officially, she's credited with 18 lives saved but the number was possibly as high as 35. 
the modest Ida kept no records of her life-saving exploits. She became the official keeper at Lime Rock in 1879 and held the position for the next 32 years. She was, for a time, the highest paid keeper in the country, and she became a celebrated national heroine. Ida Lewis died on October 25, 1911, at the age of 69. The bells of all the vessels in Newport Harbor tolled for her that night, and flags were at half-staff throughout Newport. More than 1,400 people viewed her body at the Thames Street Methodist Church. The former Lime Rock Lighthouse is now the Ida Lewis Yacht Club, and in 1995, a new Coast Guard buoy tender was named in her honor. Our guest today, Lenore Skomal, is the winner of multiple awards for literature, biography, and humor with over 30 years of professional writing experience as a journalist, columnist, author, and playwright, and 17 books published to date. You can read more about her books, plays, and other works at lenorescomal.org. That's L-E-N-O-R-E-S-K-O-M-A-L dot O-R-G. Lenore's book on Ida Lewis, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, was originally published in 2002. The New York Public Library listed it as the 2003 best book for teens, and the Oakland Press wrote, and I quote, Fascinating, a lively, fast-moving account to hold the reader's interest, spellbinding, end quote. The book has now been optioned to be adapted into a motion picture, which is one of the things I discussed in my interview with Lenore Skomal. I spoke with her in January. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am on the phone with Lenore Skomal, author of The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. Thanks so much for joining me today, Lenore. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. It's my delight to be able to talk about Ida Lewis. So we're speaking in mid-January, but this episode of the podcast will be released on February 24th, which is actually the day before Ida Lewis's birthday. Let me be the first to wish you happy Ida Lewis's birthday. Uh, And And uh, let me start by asking you a very basic question. What led you to write a book on Ida Lewis in the first place? It was really geography, actually, because I grew up in Connecticut, and uh, my sister ended up going to college in uh, Newport. And that's uh, going up there to visit her. That's when I was introduced to Ida Lewis, but realized that there were many conflicting reports about her. And she sort of was this larger-than-life person, almost like a Paul Bunyan, where I wasn't really sure if she existed or not. And that's when I started my research and realized there was no definitive account of uh, her life, much less a full biography. And Ida Lewis, she's often referred to as the the grace darling of America. And, you know, I was in England a couple of years ago and actually got to visit the Grace Darling Museum and the uh, cemetery where Grace Darling is buried. Grace Darling is a very famous English lighthouse heroine. Grace had a a short life, kind of a a tragic life. Can you comment at all on, on Grace Darling? Sure, I'm not a Grace Darling. Um, I'm not the person who has done a lot of research into Grace Darling other than the fact that she was a female who, uh, she died at 26, as you mentioned, she died very young, and that was several years after she conducted uh, a very harrowing rescue with her father. Um, and as you just said, she was she was in England at the time, and uh, much like Ida Lewis, did not want to be famous, um, but she was catapulted to fame pretty much overnight, just like Ida Lewis. 
and and she rescued. It was a shipwreck. Uh, a ferry had shipwrecked, and and she and her father went out in the middle of a gale, and they rescued quite a few passengers. Uh, and, but interesting note, you know, history is sort of one of those crazy things in terms of dates. She died the same year that Ida Lewis was born. Mm. So, uh, and that was just sort of one of those interesting facts when I was doing some research. Um, and and I think much like Ida Lewis, her fame was contingent upon the fact that. The Telegraph was around, and a lot of these little news stories were able to circulate very quickly in a very short period of time. And obviously, it was an anomaly. You had you had these women who were rescuing men and women and showing a lot of physical strength. And that was not how women were portrayed, obviously, in the uh, mid-1800s to late-1800s. Uh, they, were, they were obviously just, you know, these were supposed to be feminine, stay-at-home, quiet, uh, not people that were running out and rescuing people and neither and the interesting part is both of them were not you know massively strong looking women they were they were slight and um and would not have been the type of person you think that could haul a human body out of the water so there was a lot of things that that attracted i think it was a confluence of many factors that made grace darling um instantly famous and they were the exact same factors that contributed to why ida lewis became so famous in such a short period of time Right. Yeah, they did have a lot in common. Although, again, Grace had a short life, and Ida, Ida didn't have a long, really long life, but she did have a much longer career than than Grace Darling did. So, as you got into working on your book, how were you able to research Ida Lewis? I don't think she wrote all that much about herself. No, she wasn't a woman of letters. She kept no journals. She didn't diary. <clears throat> Probably, most likely, because she was so busy all the time. Uh, lighthouse keepers were were very busy, and that would have not that would have not been something that she would have done. And interestingly enough, when I started the research, and let's note that that was 20 years ago, uh, the first print of this book came out in 2002. Um, when I started the research, uh, folks at the Newport Historical Society said to me they thought she was um, illiterate, and I knew that that couldn't possibly be true because she was keeping logs and she had to maintain correspondence. Uh, so it was, it was a federal employee position. So, but because there was so little in terms of primary source material, I used the newspapers to start a, uh, the actual extensive research. And, and honestly, I was on deadline at the time, so I had about six months to put this together, which is not a lot of time to do a, a biography, as you probably realize. <clears throat> that being said, it was also before the Internet. Well, the Internet was around, but it wasn't as extensive. The databases weren't uploaded. You couldn't access a lot of things. So a lot of the research I had to do by hopping in a car and going to Newport or going down to D.C. to the National Archives. There's, I tried very hard to find source material to back up the newspaper articles because at the time, is and not unlike today, actually, um, you can't really rely on the newspapers as being completely accurate. So, but that was the launching point for me was to find all of um, because she was covered. She was co- everything she did. Everything she did was in the newspapers, and and that extended for most of the of the entire time that she was alive. There were a few dips where she wasn't rescuing people, but um, she there was a lot of information to go from. And then it was a matter of kind of you know backstepping from that and finding okay, where's the actual source material where that came from? Where's the interview? And piecing it together. But there are large periods of time where um, there wasn't a lot of information that I could find on her life. And uh, so now when I'm redoing the research, because we want to re-release the book, um, I'm adding and finding a lot more really wonderful information that's, that's coloring those chapters of her life that I really just didn't know much about. 
1869 seems to be the year when Ida Lewis Fever kind of reached its peak and she made uh, the cover of Harper's Weekly and all kinds of things. Why do you think the Ida Lewis uh, Fever, or Ida Lewis Mania kind of reached a crescendo in 1869? Well, 1869 was when she actually became famous. Nobody had actually heard of her outside of Newport, I'm sure, until then, because she was just the daughter of a lighthouse keeper. She she didn't have any position there. Uh, her father was pretty much listed as the lighthouse keeper, and her mom was the one that was actually taking care of the light, with along with Ida, who was the eldest of four children. What happened were two soldiers, they had uh, foolishly, in the middle of a gale, and this was uh, in March, they had hired a young boy to take them across in a skiff, and that would have taken them past the lighthouse to Fort, Mac- Fort Adams, which was the fort, an active fort at the time. And they had been drinking, and they, the, wa- the boat capsized. The boy actually drowned, and uh, Ida's mother saw the boat capsize. Ida jumped into her boat in the middle of this and, and rode out and rescued the two, boy, the two men and brought them back to the lighthouse. Now, how from that, and that happened on March 29th of 1869, the first blurb that I could find that ran in the newspaper, which was the Providence newspaper, which is, you know, very close to Newport, uh, was on March 30th. And that's when it ran a small little blurb saying um, this sad incident occurred where this young boy died, but the lighthouse keeper's daughter rescued these two soldiers. And from that moment, after that, you can see if you do the research, it's just tens uh, and then 20s and then hundreds of articles start appearing about her from from March 30th to April 11th. So all of a sudden it blows up overnight that this this you know, 28 year old flight woman you know rescued rescued these two soldiers. And so by the time we hit July 4th of July. Newport had renamed it Ida Lewis Day instead of the 4th of July. <laughs> and they had a parade and then everything just went crazy from there on in. And it was, it was, a, it was, a, and it, I mean, I still can't get over it. it the amount of attention she got from being a veritable unknown to being an international heroine. It's astounding, even by today's standards, you know, with where we have, you know, obviously the internet and Twitter and Instagram and all of that. She was um, like a Kardashian. I mean, she was <laughs> so well known it was, and I hate to, you know, <laughs> parallel that because she was literally a heroine. But yeah, it was, it was outstanding. It was outstanding what happened. And her life was changed forever because of that. We know that officially she rescued at least 18 people, but most people think the number was quite a bit higher, probably more than 30. You just mentioned one of her most famous rescues, the one that really propelled her to fame. But do you have a, a couple of maybe one or two other rescues that really stand out in your mind uh, among her, her, all the rescues that she, she did in her career? Uh, yes, there are there are several. The ones that are documented, which are in the book, um, which are very interesting. One, she rescued a sheep. I mean, it was, yeah. it was two people and a sheep, which was very funny because she had. To, I'm, I'm sure she didn't have much exposure to farm animals, but it had it had taken off and jumped into uh, the bay, and so she had to row out and kind of lash it to the side of the boat. And it was it was August Belmont's prized sheep. So if it had been lost, you know, there would have been hell to pay. But my favorite rescue is the one that um, that actually won her the um, the Congressional Medal of Honor, Life Saving Medal of Honor, because it was honestly after reading all the deposition, because they did that before obviously you got any type of recognition from the federal government. After reading the actual deposition, I was able to 
it was it was it was actually bone chilling because she almost died. I mean, she could have easily died in any of these, actually, but this one in particular. But it was in February of 1881, and there had been uh, it froze over back then. the The bay would froze over would freeze over rather. And so again, we have two soldiers. They're inebriated. They're coming from town. They want to take a shortcut rather than walk the length of the land to the you know little peninsula stuck stuck out where the the fort was. And they cut across. And as they were coming across, they fell into the water. And Ida was sick at the time. She she while she was very hardy, she did have problems with her lungs. And so she would get lung infections. And she was sitting by the fire barefoot, and she was trying to take a steam. And she she saw them go in and she realized she had to run out. She ran out barefoot or in her stocking feet, actually. And um, with no coat, she grabbed the clothesline that she was using for the lawn that would have been used for the laundry in the summertime. And she ran across the ice to rescue them. They were both immersed in the water and pulling anybody from that type of a position, as you can imagine, where they have no leverage to help hoist themselves out. And they're panicking because they didn't swim. A lot of people didn't swim. You're also fighting against hypothermia and a variety of other factors, as well as the storm going on, she was able to get both of them out. And one of them actually pulled her in with them, and she was able to get herself out and then get him out. And so she rescued both of those two men and uh, brought them over to the lighthouse. And uh, But she got very, very ill after that, quite frankly. I, I, she got pneumonia. Um, but it was one of those rescues that you, you think to yourself, could I have actually ever done that? I mean, when you think of all the factors that were against this woman, and again, she wasn't a large woman, you know, she was very slight. So the fact that she was able to pull that up, she always attributed that to just to God. She said, you know, you have the might when you need it. And she said, so the good Lord gave it to me when I needed it. So it's an incredible story and one of my favorites. Besides its maritime history, Newport's largely known for its kind of high society, the Vanderbilts and the Astors and all the the famous uh, wealthy families that built the so-called cottages there. Ida didn't have much education and uh, certainly didn't come from an upper-class background. What what kind of relationship did she have to those those wealthy people in Newport? Uh, her relationship, honestly, with the Vanderbilts and the Astors and that ilk, you know, the folks that, that owned the big mansions, um, and all those mansions started being built, quite frankly, you know, around the time she would have been in her 40s. They, she didn't really have a relationship with them in terms of she didn't go to tea, uh, they were, it was pretty much a caste system back then, uh, because she was from a working class family. Women didn't work. I mean, she clearly worked. She loved to work. Um, but an interesting note, which I, in doing the research, I uncovered that she actually did have a relationship with Elsie Vanderbilt, who would have been 38 years her junior. And Elsie lived across from the lighthouse. Literally, Ida would have been on her front lawn if she crossed over the street when she rode to shore. Uh, there was a, a beautiful estate that um, her husband had built for her when she married him. Uh, Alfred Vanderbilt was her husband, and he was the great-grandson of Cornelius, and it was called Harborview, and it was a beautiful estate that's no longer standing. But Elsie was Elsie lived there with her young child, and, I, and she would go across and she would spend time with Ida. And they did develop a friendship. And, in fact, when she passed away, Elsie was one of the people that came across um, to witness her body and to help bring it back. So there was, I don't know much about the relationship because again, there are no real letters that are penned, but it seemed very interesting to me because everybody else um, from that, that tier of society would have treated Ida like a tourist attraction. You know, she was a reason to come to Newport. 
um, to see this famous woman and people would come to see her and, and not invited. They would just row up to the island and jump out and expect to be given a tour and to be talked to, even though Ida had quite a few responsibilities. And so it was an interesting time because when you think about it, if someone just kept, you know, you had 8,000 people come to your door over the course of three months over a summertime, um, you wouldn't get much done. You'd also be highly annoyed. So Ida found a way to really uh, to get something from that. She started charging people. She would, she would have small photographs uh, or, you know, postcards of herself, and she would charge them. You'd like a picture here, 30 cents. You know, um, you want me to give you a tour of the lighthouse? Happy to do it. That'll be 50 cents. So she was able to monetize it a little bit for herself, and she got criticized for that. But when you think about it, why not make some money off your fame? Everybody else was. So um, we start to see another, yeah, we see another side of her, which was very interesting. And that's come to light in this new batch of research where I did, did try. They, were, they, they had no money. I mean, they were dirt poor. The, the, her father made $450 a year as a lighthouse keeper, and he had to support four children, a wife, and, uh, and the, he was infirmed. And there was no pension at the time. There was no medical insurance. You know, he had had a stroke, and he was pretty much um, incapable of moving. One of the uh, great mysteries of Ida's life was her marriage, her 1870 marriage to William Hurd Wilson of Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, she moved briefly to Black Rock, Connecticut with him, but we don't know a whole lot. In fact, we know virtually nothing about that period in her life. And I actually know you've been <laughs> trying to research that a little more lately. Uh, could you comment yes. on, on that? Oh, happy to do it. It's been uh, the bane of my existence for 20 years, <laughs> yeah. not, not being able to... Uh, to piece this thing together. Um, well, yeah, we, I, thankfully, thank, thanks again to the internet. And um, quite frankly, um, we actually just moved to BlackRock, oddly. Now, that's quite a coincidence. I physically moved here three months ago and connected myself with some folks that are local historians, folks you know, and yep. uh, Bruce Williams and Phil. And so uh, we, I reconnected with them, and, and Bruce is an avid researcher, and um, he's been quite helpful and sort of tracing the Wilson line, which is, would have been her husband's family line, which extends back to the pre-revolution, pre-revolutionary war. So that being said, what, what, I be, what I'm starting to get is a much fuller picture. Ida did indeed marry him in 1870. Uh, she did indeed move here. Uh, we don't know for how long she was here, but I don't think it was two years. We had initially thought it was two years because she would have moved back when her father passed away. But according to the research I'm finding is I think she moved back a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. It was an unhappy marriage. And that is that has been abundantly documented. We don't exactly know why other than that he would not support her. He did not. I don't know if he was actually working at the time when they married. I know for a fact he wasn't right before he was a mariner, but we're not quite certain what that means. We know, was he a for hire mariner? Um, how did they meet? Those those things we don't really know. Um, he did not write um, and he did not read, which is interesting. So in, in my mind, even though he may have had more money than she had and had family lineage, um, quite frankly, she was the one that was the breadwinner. And knowing her as we've come to know her, she wanted nothing to do with that. You know, he had to pull his own weight. So we know that that was one of the reasons that um, that the marriage ended except they never divorced. We have absolutely no proof that they divorced. Right. She actually still went by the name Wilson uh, up until the time she died in all the census. 
prove, you know, it'll say Wilson. And I don't know, really know why that was. Originally, I thought it was for religious reasons because she was temperate. You know, she, she wasn't a drinker. She was part of the temperance league. She was a Methodist. So I thought, oh, maybe it was religious. But now I'm beginning to wonder if it was just one of those things. And I also feel that she respected, she, she wanted privacy about that particular matter. She was used to having her life sort of under the microscope. And I think in, when it came to this, she didn't really want to malign him, nor did she want, it was a personal thing. It was her marriage. And so we have no idea, you know, if he was abusive, if there was drinking involved, if there was, we have, I have nothing. Um, and I'm trying to find some more information about that. But yeah, it's, it continues to be a little bit of a mystery, but at least we know he existed. We know more about him. We know about his family. So it's starting to color in the details. Right. Well, I'm glad you hooked up with uh, Bruce Williams. Uh, Phil Blodges there is also a good historian of Black Rock. Yep. So, And you, you great, actually great went guys. to school with, with Phil, is that right? You, you, yeah. You know, that's, that's funny. <laughs> we went to high school together. Talk about crazy. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, both uh, Bruce and Phil were on this podcast uh, not too long ago, and they're both yeah. uh, very, very knowledgeable about the lighthouses in that area as well. So it's a small world. Yes. For sure. Uh, and speaking of the lighthouses in that area, it seems possible, I would say it seems pretty likely that, that Ida Lewis met Kate Moore, who was the keeper of the Black Rock Lighthouse on Fairweather Island there, the entrance to Black Rock Harbor, uh, during the time that, that uh, Ida spent at Black Rock, uh, during the brief time that she was married. It seems very likely that she met Kate Moore. Kate Moore was the longtime keeper of that, that lighthouse on Fairweather Island. And it's a lot of fun to speculate about the the idea of them meeting. Uh, Kate was a, a number of years older than than uh, than Ida. They mm -hmm. they had a lot in common. Their lives were similar in a lot of ways. I think they're, from what I know about them, their personalities I think were probably quite different. But Kate also became a keeper when her father was incapacitated, uh, similar to to Ida. What are your thoughts about uh, the possibility of them meeting? I mean, it is it's real. It's really fun to speculate about that. It is, it is, and I, I can't. I think you would agree. How could they not have met? I mean, uh, it, the uh, now that I live here, what I do is I walk by where Ida Lewis would have lived with her family, with her husband's family, and it's directly across from the lighthouse. Directly, if you had a boat, you could just in ten minutes you'd be there. So there's and and where they where Ida was living was literally in, in near Middle Wharf where. If Kate were getting supplies or what have you, they would have run into each other. And I, I would, and she was so famous, Ida. I would have, I would have thought. I mean, in my mind, even though Kate was a quirky individual, you know, uh, some would say eccentric, um, and she was, uh, she was a good thirty years older than Ida Lewis. I, I would think that they would have to, and or Ida would seek her out. So I would love to find anything that would indicate that there was a meeting of sorts. Or that Ida would have gone to her for some type of, let, let me go see your lighthouse, let me hang out here, because Ida loved being a lighthouse keeper, and that would have been very hard for her to have been away from Lime Rock. Even if it were just for sentimentality or homesickness, I would think that Ida would have sought her out just to have someone who understood her life and someone to talk to, because I really think Ida was very lonely here and didn't have people that she that really understood her and would have treated her you know, very differently. So... I'm dying to find some bit of information and put it in the book because I really would love to be able to confirm that they had a relationship, even if it was an antagonistic one. Who knows? <laughs> but I would love to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope you find something. I, to be honest, I'd be surprised if there's anything sort of official or even 
unofficial or any you know anything really indicating that they they met anything in print of, of any kind but they had to have met i just have to believe that the, yes. there's, there's no way that they didn't I, I really believe that i agree with you yeah so late in her life ida was reprimanded by government officials for not doing her paperwork correctly that that really it really hurts to to read about that that had to be very stressful yeah, yeah. I would agree with that, and it was stressful. And her brother brings it up when, um, when she they t- in her obituary, uh, the articles that came out when she was uh, had had the stroke and she herself was unable to communicate. Her brother talks about it. He references how she'd been disregarded and treated poorly, and it started when you know after the turn of the century in the early 1900s. She was getting on in years. She was in her 60s, and she could have made a mistake. But this is a person who's very meticulous, who prided herself, you know, in her ability to do her job well, had been doing it for over 50 years, for goodness sake. But there was a lot, and you can speak to this more than I, but there were changes in management, the way things were done. There was electrification that was coming about. There were rumors, too, that they were going to, you know, um, the lighthouse was going to be um, discontinued or deactivated. Yeah, but the reprimand, especially from someone that was her junior, and and I saw the letter that was written to her, and it was very disrespectful. It was very curt, and it would have hurt my feelings, and I can't imagine it didn't her. And that I think she took very deeply. And I think that, quite frankly, her life had changed a lot. She was no longer really famous. Um, there wasn't that same uh, respect that was given to her. She had sort of fallen off the map somewhat. And, and quite frankly, after she passed away, you know, that's when all of a sudden she became back in vogue. You know, the, the the obits and the accolades and everything that happened after she died. Um, it's a little bit sad because that's the type of thing that she really deserved. She was one of those rare people that was able to see herself become famous in her own lifetime and um, and, and somewhat enjoy that thing, but at the same time fall out of measure and, and even be ridiculed and made fun of. In her later years, especially in the 1900s, you know, she died in um, 1911. Yeah. And that latter part of her life, the last five, six years, you see a smattering of small little anecdotes and barbs in the local newspapers of, you know, Ida Lewis, all she can do is, you know, uh, you know, play the wash tub or something. You know, it's like just um, boys would go out and pretend to be drowning. And so that, you know, she'd go out to rescue them and find out it was a joke. So there was, there was some unkind, cruel things that she had to witness as well. And I think all of that was brought to bear, you know, on her stamina, on her outlook on life. You know, for all we know, she could have been depressed, you know, and her her brother in as much says so. So, yes, it was the reprimand. It was the changing, you know, is the light going to be deactivated, the changing over to electrification, all that stuff. I think it compounded probably one of the reasons why she got sick. We don't know, but, you know. It, uh, it in, in the end, it wasn't it wasn't happy, you know, and I'm, and it is it's it's sad and it's sad that her life kind of ended that way. Yeah. After such a illustrious, glorious career. Yeah. And she died at 69, which is not a, a tremendously advanced age. And I, w- I would think that the, the stress added to that for sure. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Mm hmm. So to sum it up, what what for you is so fascinating about her? I mean, there's many things, but what for you is the most fascinating thing about Ida Lewis and why why should people remember her? I think I always joke that I know Ida Lewis life better than my own. I mean, I don't even <laughs> remember what date I graduated college, but so <laughs> I can give you names and dates. But yet I don't really know Ida Lewis. She continues to be an enigma. Um, what's so fascinating about her life, obviously her catapult to fame, 
But what's more fascinating to me is the fact that uh, she was completely forgotten in our national memory until I wrote the book. And I don't take credit for that. I just feel like it was astounding to me that someone who was so famous, who did so much, who was a very courageous, not seeking fame, uh, brave woman, um, true to her morals, true to what she believed to be true, was summarily forgotten by, uh, by our country. That, was, that to me was what, what's so fascinating, is why, why didn't I know about her when I was going to school and I was learning about everybody else who made this country great? Why didn't I ever hear about her? And, uh, and I, I don't have the answer to that. And, yeah. and that to me continues to be the, uh, the, the mystery. Yeah, I think uh, you know, along with with Kate Walker and and people like Kate Moore and a few others, these female lighthouse keepers, she was known to to lighthouse buffs, but not to the population at large. And your book certainly did a lot to to change that. So, thank you thank for doing you. that. Absolutely, thank you. And uh, it's very exciting that your book is now being adapted into a screenplay by our yeah. mutual mutual friend, uh, Nico Reno. I know mm-hmm. Nico, who's a, a graduate of my alma mater, uh, Emerson College in Boston. I, I uh, got a degree in filmmaking about a million years before he did uh, from Emerson ah. College. And I know he'll do an excellent job. He's a great filmmaker. How is that process coming along? Nico and I have become great friends through the process, and for a long time I thought this would just be Ida and myself on our solitary journey and our little friendship, you know, me, me sort of uh, given the mission of helping bring her back to the national memory. But then when Nico wanted to option the book, um, I knew right away he was the right person because he, he just was obsessed with her. He fell in love with her like I did, and he's been a real dogged researcher, and I very much appreciate it. He's been dedicated to understanding the truth behind her life and not just fabricating or coming up with some fictionalized version of who she is. And it's, um, and thanks to him, I've been able to open up the doors to re-researching this with the proper tools now that I didn't have 20 years ago. And I'm very committed to that. So I have a lot uh, to thank him for. I have a lot of gratitude. His, um, he's been working on the screenplay. And since we've gotten a lot of new research, especially about the William Wilson connection, I know he's on his next draft of this. And he's thinking big because he knows that she needs to be on the big screen. And a lot of people are going to be really inspired about her life as well as intrigued by it because it's a time period that was fascinating in Newport. You know, as you brought out, we have uh, the robber barons, you know, setting up houses there. There's a lot of wealth, but there's also this humble woman, you know, and it's a lighthouse and people love lighthouses and they're intrigued by them. So there's a wonderful mix here. Um, of the time period of exactly what Ida did, that he's going to bring right smack dab a visual for everybody to look at, which I, I couldn't do. I mean, I was able to write it, and that's great. But I think people, to see Ida Lewis uh, recreated on the screen is, is going to be exciting and fascinating, and I think it's going to do really well. So you can tell. I'm, I'm <laughs> about it, Jeremy. I am, too. I am, too. I've, I've put me down for my ticket. I can't wait. Uh, it's uh, it's <laughs> yes. got all all the ingredients. Uh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine a better subject. So I got one final question for you for bonus points. Uh, I know you've written <laughs> you've written a, a wide variety of things. I know you've written a lot of fiction as well. Uh, your book on Ida was uh, kind of a, a change of pace for you. I'd, I'd say. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Did writing the book on Ida Lewis turn you into a lighthouse buff? Would you say? I'm going to leave that to you, Jeremy, and the fans, <laughs> because, 
Just a just a quick anecdote. When I was doing the original book tour uh, 20 years ago, and I was going up and down the coastline, and I had a lot of chances to interact with lighthouse enthusiasts and aficionados, a lot of people who came to my book talk really wanted to learn more about lighthouses or knew a lot about lighthouses. And so interestingly enough, there would come a point in the Q&A where someone would ask a question about a Fresnel lens or something, and I would be blank stare. <laughs> and I would just look to the audience and just say, anybody here? And sure enough, there'd be five or six lighthouse enthusiasts that could answer the question. And, and it became very lively discussion. And I would learn so much more from them than I had to learn for the book. So, you know, I, I love Ida Lewis, but I have to say I fall short when it comes to uh, lighthouse uh, enthusiasts or aficionado. I admire what you do and I admire you know, people that, that love lighthouses because that's what kept them as, you know, part of our national treasure. You know, you could imagine if people didn't really love these, what would happen to them? And it's such an important part of our history and our maritime history. So, you know, hats off to you and all of those that are listening to your podcast because you have a huge part to play in preservation and conservation of these memories. Well, that's a that's a perfect answer. So thank you. And uh, again, you've made a tremendous contribution to lighthouse history with your with your book on on Ida Lewis. And again, okay. I wish you uh, a happy Ida Lewis birthday. And I, I thank thank you. thank you for joining me today. And I hope we can talk again sometime. And certainly when the movie comes out of Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, I hope we can talk about that. So I, I can't wait for that. So. Thank you, Lenore. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeremy. There are so many other famous female lightkeepers like Kate Walker, Abby Burgess, Hannah Thomas, Kate Moore, Harriet Colfax, and so many others. But Ida Lewis is the most celebrated of them all. She never wanted any fame. She simply did her job to the best of her ability and she saved lives because it was part of the job. She never saw herself as doing anything extraordinary. In 1907, Ida wrote, and I quote, Sometimes the spray dashes against these windows so thick I cannot see out, and for days at a time the waves are so high that no boat would dare come near the rock, not even if we were starving. But I am happy. There is a piece on this rock you don't get on the shore. There are hundreds of boats going in and out of this harbor in summer, and it's part of my happiness to know that they are depending on me to guide them safely." End quote. Thanks again to our guest today, author Lenore Skomel. You can buy her book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, in many bookstores and on Amazon.com and other online booksellers. Thanks to everyone who works for the preservation of lighthouses and maritime history. And thanks to all the staff, volunteers, and members of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Check out USLHS online at uslhs.org. You can learn about memberships, domestic and international tours, the Lighthouse Passport Program, the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog, and all of the resources the U.S. Lighthouse Society has to offer. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to support it by making a donation to the U.S. Lighthouse Society or by becoming a member. Members also receive the quarterly journal, The Keeper's Log, which is full of interesting articles about lighthouse history. Your donations really make a difference and help support the Society's mission 
to foster public knowledge and enjoyment of America's rich and important lighthouse heritage. This podcast is one of the ways the Society does that. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light.